Don't worry, I'm not going to do any interpretive dancing this morning. I'm going to save that for next week. It would overwhelm you. (laughs) Not in a good way. (laughs) So it is Pentecost this morning. We are not a liturgical church, but this is the day that the church celebrates the outpouring of the Spirit. And the Feast of Pentecost is even mentioned in this passage that we're going to be looking at. It's that Feast of first fruits when the crops first came in. And it's a picture of, in the New Testament, God pouring out his Spirit and then 3,000 souls coming in to the church, the first fruits of that gospel that had penetrated and permeated the hearts of God's disciples at that point in time. Before we looked in Exodus at the fact that Moses said, if you do not go with us, man, we don't want to go anywhere. And to me, that's the heart of Pentecost as well. God, if you do not reside in us by your spirit, we are not able even to go anywhere. We can do a lot of stuff, but nothing that will result in lasting, permanent, significant change in our lives or in the lives of anybody else. And sometimes in Bible teaching churches, we forget about the importance of the Holy Spirit. We get nervous about that. But if the Holy Spirit isn't resident in us as believers, then we are just going through a bunch of religious motions. That was the significance of Pentecost. And that is, in essence, a huge difference between the old covenant that we're going to be looking at this morning and the new covenant is the Holy Spirit was anointing people for a particular period of time in the Old Testament, but now we live in a time where the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in us. So that's an amazing thing. God has not left us alone. He has empowered us and equipped us to do what he's called us to do. So just a reminder of this event this morning. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever needed a second chance? Or a third chance, or maybe even a fourth chance? When I was young and you blew it, and you said, hey, I wanna take a do-over, right? I don't know what kids use today, but this reality of can I just go back and start from the beginning and do this over, right? It may be a harsh word that you said in a relationship. It may be that you were mad or that you were envious of somebody and you found words of gossip spilling out of your mouth. And if you were honest in your heart, the reason that you said that was because you were envious and you wanted to take that person down a few notches. But as soon as it leaves your mouth, you're like, what in the world did I say that for? Will that person give me a second chance? In golf, the word for second chances is a mulligan, right? There are some of you who are golfers out there, and, uh, you know, when you're on the first tee box and you, you address that little white ball, and it looks so easy on TV, right? They just smack it. It goes 350 yards right down the middle of the fairway. When I get up there, I smack it, and it shanks off almost immediately into the woods, and I'm like, I'm going to take a mulligan here, right? Let me do this shot over or when you hit the ball right in the water. There's a mulligan. But if you're on the PGA Tour, right, and Rory McIlroy or Tiger Woods steps up to the tee box and he shanks one off or puts it in the water, he doesn't look to anybody to say, hey, I'd like a mulligan on that. He doesn't go to the PGA official and say, hey, I'd like a mulligan. Why? Because he knows that that PGA official will offer him absolutely no grace, no second chances. You've got to play the ball that you hit. 
And I wonder how we think about our relationship with God. Is he that gracious person that will offer us a mulligan, or is he the official that says, sorry, you've messed up, there's no second chances, there's no do-overs in life? We're going to look at that question this morning as we look at Exodus 34. We're going to be starting in verse 9. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to follow around. There should be one under one of the seats near you. If you don't own a Bible, if you're just kind of here investigating Christianity, there's a bookshelf out in the foyer. Just There's Bibles back there and other resources. Please pick up anything that's of interest to you. And so we looked at the first part of chapter 34 last time, and we looked at the most quoted by other Old Testament writers piece of text in the Old Testament, that God is, some translations say, merciful or compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness, forgiving for thousands but not clearing the guilty. And we looked at that as this is God's kind of description of who he is. This is the first time in the Old Testament where God said, this is who I am. This is my character. And we remember this comes basically at the end of God before he appears to Moses on the mountain. He gives him the 10 words or the 10 commandments. He comes down, he delivers it to the people in chapter 24. They're like, we're all in. We will do everything that God says. Everything. We're going to obey. They say that twice, right? Then Moses goes back up the mountain and he's gone for a little while and they're like, where is this guy? What's going on? Hey, Aaron, you make us a God that we can see. And they indulge in pagan revelry, probably Basically, a religious orgy was going on there. Moses comes down the mountain, and he sees what's going on. God had told him, hey, it's gotten really bad down there. He smashes the ten words, the tablets, and then he's like, what in the world is going to happen? What is going to happen to these people? Has God rejected these people? It's only been 40 days since he gave this command, right? And this, they've entered into this covenant, and it was like, a marriage relationship, right? And it's almost like when Moses comes down the mountain, he takes off the wedding band and he just chucks it away. How is God gonna respond? Is he gonna stay with these people? And so God responds basically to Moses' plea to stay with the people and then he goes up the mountain and he says, Moses, cut yourself some new tablets, right? Get another wedding band. <laughs> Come on up. And that's where we pick up the story. And God had just appeared to Moses. He'd proclaimed his name, his character, that I'm merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness. And this is how Moses responds in verse 8. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor, literally grace in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. Pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. And he said, behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you shall see the work of the Lord... For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. 
Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, you are invited and you eat of the sacrifice and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal, You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I command you at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For for in the month of Abib you came out of Egypt. All that open the womb are mine. All your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you do not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem. And none shall appear before me empty-handed." Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of the wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord, the God of Israel. For I will cast out the nations before you and larger borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times a year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the sacrifice of the feast of Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God and you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, or Ten Words. When Moses came down from the mount, from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, and as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, And Moses talked with them. Afterwards, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with them, with him he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what what was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. This is a reading of God's word. So we read through this, and it's a lot of Old Testament covenant-type stuff, you know, of the feasts and not boiling a kid and its mother's milk and all that kind of stuff. So how in the world does this stuff relate to us? And I think in this section, there's some great, truths about how we relate to God when we are people that need a second chance or a third chance or a fourth chance or a fifth chance. The first thing I see here, and I see it as Moses approaches the Lord in verse 
8 is that we need at those times, especially when we've blown it, we need to count on God's gracious character, right? Moses is depending on God's word. God just said, you know, this is the kind of God I am. I am compassionate and gracious, right? Slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness, forgiving the sins of thousands. And so immediately right after that, what does Moses say? (laughs) Hey, God, if I've found favor or grace in your sight, because this is the kind of God that you are, please go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and sin and take us for your inheritance. So what is Moses doing here? He's depending on the truth of what God has revealed about who he is. And he's going to God and he's saying, you know what, look at us, we're a stiff-necked people. But you know what you've said about yourself? You've said that you're compassionate and that you're gracious, and that you're slow to anger, and you overflow with love. So because of that, and because I've received that, go with us. Forgive our iniquity and sin. Those are two of the words for sin that God had just said, this is the kind of stuff that I forgive. And Moses says, forgive us for this. He depends on what God has revealed about himself. Because you're this kind of God, I'm coming to you now, and I'm asking you to forgive us. And then he says to take us for your inheritance. We want to be yours, right? I don't know if you remember this all the way back in chapter 19. God says, you follow me, and you will be what? My treasured possession, that word segula that we looked at. You're you're the apple of my eye. You were mine, and then these people blew it in a major way, and Moses is saying, please, please, still can we be your treasured possession? your inheritance. Don't cast us aside. Don't throw us away. Still, we want that place in your heart. So when we blow it, to me, usually our feelings will not move us right back to God right away. In fact, our tendency when we blow it is to move away from God, right? And then you know, maybe in our mind we'll say, okay, these are the things I'm going to do to make up for that screw-up in my life. You know, I'm going to get up a little bit earlier and pray a little bit longer. If I never pray, I'm going to start praying, or I'm going to start reading my Bible, or these are the things that I'm going to do to kind of make myself acceptable to God. Or we just hide away. And then we seek to justify what we've done, right? We see this all the way back with Adam and Eve, right? Hey, not my fault, God. The snake. Not my fault, God. The woman you made, you gave me, it's her fault. And I think what this passage teaches us is when we blow it, to go to God right away and depend on his character. He is gracious. He is compassionate. He is slow to anger. So when our feelings say, move away, push back, stay away from this God, that's the very time when to me, Our faith needs to be most active and I need to say, I'm trusting in your word, God. I'm a mess right now, but your word says that you're compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, ready to forgive, and so I'm gonna move into you. And when we do that, that is actually a huge exercise of faith on our part. It's trusting what God has said about himself. This is the kind of God that I am. And that's what Moses does as soon as he hears this. He falls down and he says, God, 
You've been gracious to me. Be gracious to our people. Forgive our iniquities and our sins. And that's my second point. When we've blown it, go to God and fully acknowledge your failure and your sin. Don't try to justify it, right? Moses is not trying to justify anything. In fact, he says, man, we're a stiff-necked people. We know we're stubborn, right? Forgive our sins and our iniquities. Moses is not, well, I'm well beyond these people. But like a good intercessor for the people, he identifies with the people, ultimately a picture of Christ identifying with us, taking our sin upon himself. But here we have Moses identifying with his people and said, forgive and pardon our iniquities and our sins. He's not beating around the bush. He's not justifying. He's not saying, well, you know, God, hey, these people, they're really a good people. They really, really are. But, you know, I was up on the mountain for a long time. They're in the middle of the desert. You know, they're starting to get anxious. They don't know who they really are. Are we Egyptians? Are There's all this stuff going on in their lives. You know, I mean, you can kind of understand, God, why they would want a God that's more visible and a, and a calf before them. That's the only kind of religion they've known, right? And now you're saying you're I am that I am. What does that actually mean? So give them a break. He doesn't say that. He says, let's own this. We're stubborn. We're rebellious. We're stiff-necked. There's no justifying. There's no attempts to minimize what went on. There's just, this is what we're like. Forgive us. We don't get forgiven because we're not sinners. We get forgiven because God is really gracious and good. And I think our problem is sometimes we pretend we're not sinners. Or when we blow it, we, we minimize it or we seek to justify it. It's going and specifically naming that thing. God, I blew it. I was envious. And man, I put down something on the credit card that I never should have put down on that credit card because I thought life was found in that thing and now we're in financial straits. I'm sorry about that. Or I was just really ticked off. And to be honest, God, I wanted to hurt that person. That's what I wanted at the moment, and it's not pretty, but it is what I did. So please forgive me for that. To name our sin. In 1 John 1, 9, right? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word confess in Greek there is homologeo. It means to say the same thing as. I say the same thing about my behavior as God says about it. I look at that in the way God looks at it. And that's one of my prayers. God, help me to see sin like you see it. Because I usually don't. I look at sin and it's shiny and it's bright. It's like, wow, that's going to give me something I really want right now. And I've been holding out and now it's, oh. So God, help me to see that. But when I blow it and I give in to that temptation, like James says, we all stumble in many ways. Then I own that stumble and I go to God and say, this is who I am. I'm stick-necked. I'm stubborn. I want what I want. And I think in our day and age, basically, what we want is what the self wants, right? We don't have idols. I'm not tempted to cast an idol and bow down and worship that. What I am tempted to do is worship me. Because now we live in a world where there's nothing transcendent outside of who I am, right? 
And so what I want matters most in this world. What satisfies me matters most in this world. And that's the world we're living in, right? There's no transcendent meaning. We're just all here by chance. And so what I want is what I want to get through this life. And I don't think there's anything after it. So that's what I want. The world needs to revolve around me and my desires, whatever they may be. And we have a billion, two billion, three billion, four billion, five billion, six billion, seven billion people living like that. When we all do that, ultimately it's going to result in a problem. Because when what I want interferes with what you want, <laughs> then there's a problem. The only way to solve that problem is to look to God and recognize, you know what, there's something transcendent that's bigger than what I want or what you want, and that's what God wants and what he's called us to be about. And so when we've blown it, to go to God because he is gracious and compassionate, but then to fully own what we've done, not to justify it, not to minimize it, not to blame it on somebody else. Our culture is great. This culture of victimhood, you know, it's, it's not my fault. It's how I was potty trained. It was my bad dad, my bad mom. You know, whatever it was, it, it can't be me, right? Because I've been told since I was this big that I am the best, that I don't ever do anything wrong. Everything I've ever participated in, I've got a trophy for. Look at me, my wall's full of participation trophies. Wonderful. And God says, no, own your stiff-necked rebellion. Come to me. And then I see here this recommitment to putting God at the center of our life again. Verse 10, he says, behold, I'm making or cutting a covenant before all your people. I'm going to do all this amazing stuff. God says, you know what? I'm willing to take my vows again with you people. I'm willing to enter into this relationship with people again. Even though you've blown it, even though you blew it basically on the honeymoon, I still want to be married to you and I'm going to enter into this relationship with you once again. We're going to renew our vows here and he says, observe what I command. And in this section, he reiterates some of the commands that he did before in Exodus 25 through 31, where he outlined the covenant there and a lot of the stipulations. But here, he's specifically, I think, focusing in on one main area, and that's how we worship God. Who is at the center of life? My life and the life of these people. He adds a few more specifics. He says, don't make any cast idols. The exact same words when Aaron cast the idol, he says, okay, don't do that again. Observe the feasts. Come to Jerusalem. Be centered and focused on the Lord, right? Don't have any other idols, gods before me. Center your life around me. And then he says stuff like, don't enter into covenants or relationships with these people. Don't worship their gods. In fact, when you enter in the land and I've driven them out, I want you to destroy their idols and destroy their altars and cut down their asherim. Asherim, asheratah or asherah as is always translated in the, the Old Testament, was this goddess of fertility. 
Baal or El was the great god of the land in that time, and Asherah was his consort, his wife. She was the goddess of fertility, basically. So these poles were probably phallic symbols, and worship was basically religious prostitution that was going on there. And he says, you go in the land, you've got to cut these things down. You do not worship in the same way that these pagans worship, even though I've driven them out. If these things remain, you will be tempted to stumble and worship me in a way that is not appropriate. So tear them down and destroy them. And as I thought about this, how does this apply to my life? You know, there's not things in my life that I set up as totems to worship in that way, but is there anything that is a snare to me? So it says, if you enter into relationship with these people and begin to assimilate their ways, they're going to be a snare to you. They're going to cause you to stumble. So what do I need to destroy, to tear down in my life that's causing me to stumble? And what is not being said in this passage is that we as believers need to have no contact with non-believers. It's clear in the New Testament, Paul says, you know, when I said don't associate with the people that are immoral and all this, I wasn't talking about associating (laughs) with non-believers that are like that. That's the only kind of people in the world, right? You were that one time, I was that one time, but that's not what I'm saying. But don't associate with people who call themselves believers and act in this way. But I think we need to recognize that those that are closest to us have an influence on us, right? As scripture says, what, bad company corrupts good character. And again, to me, one of the things we need to ask about our relationships is, is this relationship encouraging me to push into God? Is it drawing me closer to the Lord? Or is this relationship pulling me away? Am I beginning to compromise? Am I beginning to walk in a way that I know, ah, that's not that right? You know, the New Testament talks about not being unequally yoked. And to me, it's pretty clear that applies to marriage. That if you're single and you're looking for a partner, that partner needs to be a believer. Because the very core of who you are is going to be different with a non-believer, right? The things that you value most, that person's not going to value. And if you're in a close relationship like that, it's just not going to be the best. And then we can talk about, you know, where you lo- draw the line in terms of, okay, can you be in a business partnership? All those, those kind of things. But it's, to me, pretty clear that those really, really close relationships need to be relationships where they're not going to lead you astray, And in this section, there's all this talk about whoring after other gods and that kind of stuff, and it sounds strange to our ears, but I think we need to recognize that when God looks at us, he looks at us, in essence, as a marriage partner. And when we sin, it's not just, oh, I've disobeyed law 372, sorry about that. It's I have been unfaithful to this God who loves me like no other person loves me. And in this section, God says he's a jealous God, and that's his name. And we hear that, and it's like, whoa, that's, I don't like that, right? Because when we experience jealousy, it's not usually good, right? 
And the word jealousy and envy kind of overlap, and usually it's a bad thing in our lives. It's like, oh, I want to control this other person. I want them to be mine. It's all about me, right, when I'm jealous of somebody else. I want to read you just a short quote from Philip Ryken. He says, what does this mean? We usually think of jealousy as spiteful envy, but how could such an attitude be worthy of God? Interesting thing, this word jealous here, it's only used of God in the Old Testament. It's not used of human jealousy at all. So that should give you an idea. It's a different category than what we think of jealousy normally. The answer is that there's more than one kind of jealousy. Of course, jealousy can be sinful and is with us. It usually is. In the Oxford English Dictionary, it defines the word jealous as, quote, afraid, suspicious, or resentful of rivalry in love. This is the way we tend to be, resentful of a rival. But the primary definition of the word is fiercely protective. And although God is neither suspicious nor resentful, he certainly is protective, especially when it comes to his relationship with his people. There's nothing God guards more jealously than his love for us and our love for him in the covenant. According to J.I. Packer, quote, God's jealousy is not a compound of frustration, envy, spite, as human jealousy so often is, but appears instead as a praiseworthy zeal to preserve something supremely precious. So what God says is, I want you to center your life on me. Why? Because God's got a big ego? No, because he knows that's what is best for us. When we think about God, he's the best of every, he's the greatest great, right? And so if I turn my heart from him to something else, even if that is something else is a good thing, it's a lesser thing than him, right? So he's saying, I want your life to be centered around and focused on me. And I'm passionate about that relationship. I'm a jealous God because I want your heart because I know your heart will only find its best when it's in relationship with me. And if you run after this pagan God or if you run after the God of self, it's ultimately gonna leave you disappointed and it's a way that ultimately ends up in death. So he is a jealous God. Again, we talked about this relational dimension to our interaction with God. Belief in Jesus Christ is not just this intellectual head thing, right? But it's a heart trust in a real person, a real being. And it's something that I exercise every day. It's not like, yeah, I believed when I was 12 and I went to camp and, you know, I did that thing. No, I am trusting right now. Every moment of my life is a walk in trust. God, am I going to trust you or am I going to trust myself here? And what the culture is saying, man, you need to trust yourself. That's where the center of your life needs to be. And God says, no, you need to trust me. Because there's ways that seem right to you and they seem like, man, life is there and I'm telling you because I'm God and because I love you, that ultimately is gonna lead to death and destruction in your life. And I'm not telling you that because I've got this big ego and I want you to be all about me. I'm telling you that because I am the best thing and I'm the thing that will most satisfy you. God is passionate for our hearts. And I think we need to recognize that the main thing we need to focus on is our worship of the Lord, our love of the Lord. Remember Peter? One of those disciples that's known for kind of sticking his foot in it, right? You know, Peter, he's mouthing off when he shouldn't, 
you know, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, you know, <laughs> but now, and then Peter's saying, I'm never gonna, never gonna deny you. Everybody else may, but Jesus, I'm your man. I'm your man, right? Everybody else, little lower class disciple, but I'm the guy. And Jesus says, three times tonight, you're gonna deny me, right? And what happens that night before the rooster crows, right? Three times, they're sitting around a charcoal fire. And even to a lowly household servant, Peter said, I don't know that guy. And then I love the end of the Gospel of John. Jesus is on the beach and he's cooking over a charcoal fire. What would that bring Peter back to? Man, the last time that I met with Jesus, there was a charcoal fire there too and it wasn't my brightest moment. In fact, I need a second, third, fourth, fifth chance here. And what does Jesus ask Peter? Does he ask him, okay, Peter, are you gonna buck up? Are you never gonna deny me again? Are you gonna be the best boy that you can possibly be for the rest of your life? What does he ask him? Do you love me? And how many times does he ask him, do you love me? Three times. I think given Peter that opportunity to make up for those three denials. And Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. You know what, Peter? The most important thing in your life is do you love me? Am I at the center of your life? And if I'm at the center of your life, your behavior will follow. But if I'm not there, all the external pressure to behave is ultimately gonna leave you where you were the first time you were around a charcoal fire. So do you love me, Peter? And Jesus reinstates Peter even after his miserable failures. So is God at the center of your life? That's, I think, what all this is about. Go to the feast, keep Jesus there, don't make any other idols. Keep God at the center of your life, he's telling these Israelites. And finally, I think we need to seek to reflect God's character and glory to those around us. And this is at the end of the chapter where Moses' face is shining. For a while, there was a thing going around. It's like, you know, I used to see t-shirts, be the moon, reflect the sun, S-O-N. And I like that because here we have Moses. He's in the presence of God and he comes down the mountain and he doesn't even realize that his face is shining. And the people are like freaked out. It's like, what in the world is going on? Well, why was his face shining? The text tells us here that it was shining because he had been speaking with God. He'd been speaking. He'd been interacting with God. You would think he's been shining because the glory passed by and all that was there. No, the text says he had been speaking with God. That's why his face was shining. Interesting, the word for shining here is karan. And uh, there's a similar word in Hebrew with the same three-letter root that's karen, that's horns, right? So if you've ever taken an art history class, you'll, you'll see Moses often pictured with horns. So see you wanna show uh, the picture on the slide here. Um, this is uh, Michelangelo's uh, St. Peter in Chains, and this is Moses, and you can see those two things on his head. 
their horns, right? Well, Jerome in the fourth century translated the Latin translation, which was the Vulgate, and he read that word Quran, or it's just without even vowels there, Quran, and he said, oh, it's horns, right? And so that was the Bible that was used predominantly for a while, so that's why Moses is often pictured with horns here. So if you see art history, this is just a side, a bonus for being here this morning. And notice Moses is pretty buff, man. He's been like, <laughs> he's been working out, you know, maybe 40 days. Without, he's just, you know, I don't know what God was feeding him up there spiritually, but, you know, he was ripped when he came down from, from the mountain. But that's, that's the horns, and that's the, uh, kind of the origin of, of the horns there. But basically, Moses' face was shining. He was reflecting God. Why? Because he had been speaking with God. Well, how does God speak his name to us now? Psalm 75.1 says this, and this is out of the New English Bible. I think it's probably one of the more accurate translations. He says, your name is brought very near to us in the story of your wonderful deeds. Your name, and we've talked about that reality that the name is the character of the person. It's not just the first name of the person. Your name is brought near to us basically in the retelling of your wonderful deeds. So how do we hear the name of God when we focus and ponder on the wonderful deeds of God? That will help us radiate the glory of God to those around us. Paul talks about this incident in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. You don't have to turn there, but basically he's talking about the reality of this new covenant that we have is more glorious than the old one. And they said Moses' face was shining, but then it would dim, but then he'd get recharged once he went back into the presence of God. But he says, now we have this permanent glory, and where does that reside? It says it resides the glory of God, verse four or verse six of chapter four of Second Corinthians. We see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So if we want to reflect God to those around us. I don't know of anybody else in Scripture that's face shone like Moses. But the psalmist says, those who come to God, their faces are radiant, right? There's a radiance about believers sometimes that you can just, you're in their presence and you know, okay, this person is different. There's a distinctiveness about them. Why does that happen? What comes about in that process is the person has spent time in the presence of Jesus staring at the face of Jesus, thinking and reading about the deeds, the wonderful deeds of Jesus. So if you're here this morning and you want to reflect God, how do we do that? I don't think God's calling you to go out to Colorado or Idaho or someplace like that, climb a mountain. You know, if God calls you out there, it's a beautiful place to be, but to me, we experience speaking with God and hearing from God when we spend time with Jesus, pondering his words, allowing him to communicate with us and speaking with him. Again, to me, it's really interesting that the text says that basically that's why Moses' face was glowing because he'd been speaking with God. You know, pastors, they always say, oh, you need a quiet time, you need time... <laughs> And we don't just say that because, you know, that's something pastors should say, but that is the core of 
our relationship, right? It's time spent with one another. Anybody who's in a marriage recognizes that the best gift that you can give your spouse is time spent with them. And I hate this, you know, well, I give my spouse two minutes a week, but it's quality time. <laughs> and I've said that before, you know, you will not have quality time unless you have quantity time, right? You can't just manufacture those moments of intimacy and closeness. They come with time spent, and as kind of serendipitously, they, they happen in life. But somehow we think, oh, God, I gave you two minutes this morning. <laughs> I got my two-minute Bible done, and, and we're good to go. If you're not spending any time with God, well, okay, starting with two minutes is our first step. But to me, if we want to really radiate the presence of Christ in our world, we need to spend time with Jesus, focusing in basically on his name. And that doesn't mean saying Jesus, Jesus, it's the character of Jesus, which is the exact same as the character that the Father revealed to us. He's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, forgiving our sins, iniquities, and transgressions, yet not clearing the guilty. As we said last week, the only way that we balance the justice of God with the love of God is in the person of Jesus Christ, who there on the cross absorbed the punishment that I deserve so that God could be both just and righteous in that my sins were dealt with, they were punished, but he took the punishment on himself so that I could have life. As Brian said, that's something to dance about. Then I now can enter into the presence of God with boldness and confidence why? Not because I'm not stiff-necked, because I can still be really stiff-necked. Ask my wife, ask my kids, you know. It's the reality. Yet I can go into the presence of God and say, God, forgive my stiff-necked nature. Not because I deserve that, because that's your nature. And you've promised that if I confess my sins, you're gonna forgive them based on the work of Jesus Christ on that cross. So if you're here this morning and if you've never embraced Christ, Jesus Christ in faith, I'd urge you to do that. There's nothing that you have done that will keep God away from you. The only thing that's keeping God away from you is you. So run to him, as we said. Seek his forgiveness. Recognize that that's the kind of God he is. He's a God that in Ezekiel 18, he says, I take no delight in the death of the wicked, but that everyone would turn, would repent, would come to me, would own their stuff and say, yes, I am a stiff-necked rebel that wanted to be God in my own life, but I'm coming to you because I know you're gracious and compassionate, and when I own that stuff, you'll forgive me, and you'll forgive me based on the work of Jesus Christ on that cross. That's dancing stuff. Let's pray. Father, we're back once again. And it's probably not for a second chance, but for a 537th chance or a 1,976th chance. Yet you are gracious and compassionate. Thank you that you are that way. Lord, we are stiff-necked. We want our own way. We want to be our own God. We want to make our own rules. Yet if we'll turn to you, if we'll acknowledge that reality in our lives, you are so willing to forgive. You run to prodigals, Lord. Thank you that that's the kind of God that you are. 
Lord, help us to see that in the face of Jesus. Lord, help us to spend time with him. Lord, thank you that you long for us to be with you, that we are your inheritance. We are your precious treasure. And it's so hard sometimes to remember that when we look at ourselves. But Lord, you are making us into something that we are not naturally by your spirit that resides in us. So Lord, once again, we just want to say we want to give you room to operate in our lives. Point out those areas where we are falling short. Help us to confess those honestly. And then Lord, help us to trash some things in our lives that are snares to you that keep you off that center place of our heart that lead us astray. Lord, we want to be fully yours, but we so struggle to do that regularly. Thank you that you're gracious and kind. So we come once again asking you, because this is who you are, to be gracious and kind, to forgive our sins, Lord, to lead us in the everlasting way. And until we're home, Lord, fill us with your spirit. Help us to reflect you to be the moon that reflects the very Son of God to the world around us. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. Thank you for doing that. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.